I'm Toby Haydock, and I gate-crashed a BBC Tech Ops reunion, so this episode has miscellaneous guests. I'm Bernie Newnham. I worked on Colony in Space as camera five or some such number like that. I don't know. Um, there was a battle. It was in TC3, I think. There was a battle between the colonists and uh, whoever else they were, the, the good, the baddies. Anyway, some of the extras were just very camp, dear, and weren't used, when presented with an AK-47, were a bit sort of, oh. Anyway... Right in front of me were the two, uh, these two guys um, with their AK-4, or, you know, whatever, some kind of submachine gun thing. And one of them locked onto fire. It, it jammed or something, so it's firing. So he went, oh, and dropped it. And the, although it's firing blanks, the shell cases still come firing out. And in this case, they were coming out firing at me. There's shell, hot shell cases coming past me, past the camera. Whilst he's sitting there going, oh, oh, oh I can't do this, and other such stuff. We had to stop and start again. That's all the story, really. So you nearly got killed doing comedy. But you, you said to me that you were the hands of the giant robot. I wasn't actually the hands of the giant robot. When uh, Liz Sladen had to be lifted up, she was against Blue, I think. And the, um, you see the giant robot pick her up. And so um, they did an outside broadcast down at Evesham with the, the robot. Yeah. At that point, the, the background was Evesham. The robot was in the studio. Liz was in the studio somewhere else in the studio. The robot was holding a yellow bit of um, uh, wood about her size. So they keyed out the, the yellow and they keyed out the blue background and put Evesham in. And I operated the camera where Liz was lying on the floor. So when the robot picks her up, I had to pan down so that she moved up with the robot in sync with the robot's arm with Evesham in the background. When they wanted Daleks, they have to get them in and, and bring them in. Um, and afterwards, they would go away again. So the guys would come along and dump them off their lorry, and the scene crew would bring them inside to the studio. And when they finished, they park them outside again, and then they go away. But one year, they forgot one, and they sat outside TC8 for months. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a Dalek, but once you're in, it's very difficult to get out again. So... It's a bit of a laugh to sort of think there's the Dalek. So you take the lid off and one of the crew on the way to dinner or back from dinner or back from the bar gets inside. You put the lid back on and then you can scoot around and be a Dalek, which none of us had done, of course, up to then because they were a bit precious about it. But one week we left Andy Herbert in the Dalek and went to dinner because he couldn't get out. We did actually take pity on him in the end, but once you're in a Dalek, it's very difficult to get out because it's too heavy to lift. So poor old Andy Herbert was stuck. Stuck. Stuck in a Dalek. Stuck in a Dalek, yes. For a man with no anecdotes, you've now, didn't, you've now given me three. <laughs> Katie Manning, in rehearsal, used to wear these big pebble glasses, which meant that she could hit her marks because she could see them. But come the show, she'd take the glasses off. And then she couldn't see anything, so you never knew where she was going to end up. So you'd end up trying desperately to end up where she ended up to get the same shot you thought you had before Katie took her glasses off. And did, did, did different directors impact upon your job? Because obviously some of the directors like Michael Bryant or Chris Barry or... Yes, they, they, all had their, they all had their own personalities and some of them were mad. Um, David Sullivan Proudfoot always wanted 600 shots in a show and everybody else just wanted 300 shots. Um, but yes, they all had their personalities. Some were more organised than others. Some you thought, oh no, another day with this idiot because they weren't organised and 
if you had a good crew or, or if they were nice to you, the crew and the rest of the production staff would sort of take over and help them along, get things done, because you've you know, got deadlines to hit all the time. Um, some of them are highly efficient and some of them are rubbish and some of them are in the middle. Michael Bryant, excellent. Dougie Camfield? No, he wasn't on that, was he? And who, he, he, did, some, he did some who's, but yeah, maybe not I, for I, you. I worked on a Dougie Camfield on something. He was, again, efficient. But you mentioned that somebody else who was mad. Chris uh, Barry? No, Chris Barry was excellent. Jerry Blake? No, he was excellent too. None of these were idiots. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. I can't think of one. Actually, Rudy Cartier. Yeah. Rudy Cartier was never as good as you thought he was. You know, you think, I worked on a Rudy Cartier play, and you think, wow, it's Rudy Cartier. I've seen him on this as the BBC. He's a legend. It, my, the senior cameraman, um, Jim Atkinson, who was our, our senior cameraman, was a legend at the time. I have to carry him again. And he did. Jim carried him through the show. Um, and I was amazed, really, because I, I knew him as a legend, and he wasn't. Well, he did quite a match. I know he did, but that doesn't mean he did it well. <laughs> I, I don't know if he did or not. I was at school at the time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You really go, oh, the legends turn out to be not as legendary as you thought, necessarily. So who's the best director you worked for? Michael Apted was very good. Oh, yeah. Um, I do remember Mike. You remember Michael Apted because he went on to do James Bonds and things like that. I worked on uh, Yeoman and the Guard. No, Jack Point, it actually was called Jack Point, about the Yeoman and the Guard that he was on. And he was very good. Thanks. But, oh, and Bernie, do you have a pet charity? Because um, well, when I stick this out, we'll ask the listeners to uh, give to a charity. Uh, oh, I do Médecins Sans Frontières myself. Nice one. So, so does Barry Egan. There you go. So there we go. Thanks, Bernie. I'm just to do a little interview on the fly with a gentleman who's got an anecdote about working on the opening titles of Doc 2. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me uh, his memories. Yes, I'm Dave Mundy. I worked on Crew 1 and in Studio D. We spent the whole afternoon pointing one of the CPS Emitron cameras at a monitor to get a vision how around and eventually record it on Telecine to get the uh, opening titles. And after that, we worked on the very few first episodes of Doctor Who. Um, all I remember of that is it was uh, cavemen wearing skins with bare feet on a very hot summer day in Studio D, where the four lights, which were tungsten lights, were extremely hot. And the smell in that place was unbelievable. I've got another BBC veteran who's got a Doctor Who story for me, so I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me his story. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Brian White. I'm a television cameraman back in 1963. Uh, We were on Crew One. Uh, We got to hear about the uh, onset of the new series, which seemed a bit weird way out. Um, We were briefed on the situation in the run-up. My particular little claim to fame was I was subjectively the first Dalek to appear. My camera, which I think was camera four on about the second or third episode, um, menacingly advanced on the, the... the main lady in the plot it's called Barbara, she was a teacher um, and I represented a Dalek and I had a young floor manager with a s- seersucker thing on the front which, which meant to make us look like a Dalek 
Um, and when in the final version, I think there's about three seconds of this, but I seem to get the accolade that I was the first Dalek which then came the next episode which we then recorded a week later I say recorded yeah they were recorded um, was revealed from another camera to be the Daleks as we know them so that was the sort of little claim to fame that's a heck of a claim to fame the first Dalek it was quite well documented in the staff um, aerial probably 15 years ago or so um, and I think they corrected me on a couple of things I thought it was Carol Ann Ford I advanced on but no it was the older girl the the older girl in the the story and um, I say we got a bit of insight in the run up to it how the character of the Doctor was based on a character from the sporting life which was a film which had gone out, um, been made a year or two before, and they were very impressed with William Hartnell's portrayal of the uh, trainer of this rugby team and the way he sort of had a distant look in his eye and he'd drift off and they thought that would be the character we'll build Doctor Who round. As it turned out in later episodes, he was a bit dreamy and the lines didn't come easy and there were all sorts of ups and downs. But uh, it was quite pioneering days. And Studio D, Lime Grove, 1963. I think we were doing the pre-rehearsal and we came down for a tea break and somebody said, President Kennedy's been shot. So that pinned us down and but they went ahead with the first transmission. Um, you know, I think there was a Radio 4 programme about the reunion with yeah. Sue McGregor, which brought some of the people together. Uh, Warris Hussein was the first director. Um, Verity Lambert was the producer. Sidney Newman was the top man. And... Um, we, we I say we were briefed about the sort of setup that it would be, and all tucked away on the fourth floor of Lime Grove Studios. Very small studio. Pretty small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that probably wasn't a drawback because uh, you wanted it to be quite uh, claustrophobic, and, uh, and then they conjured up the idea that once you were inside this phone box which stood in the corner everything would become massive and, uh, and were they quite hard cameras to manoeuvre though because they were huge weren't they well they weren't particularly huge no they were CPS Emitron I think I'm correct um, they had uh, turrets on the front um, it wasn't till really the first colour cameras sometime later that they really got massive. These were um, quite usable. Um, uh, funnily enough, in my later career, I used to find you put a camera on your shoulder and it was uh, you're difficult keeping it still, whereas the big ones were fine. So that's sort of... That's a story. That's marvellous, Brian. Thank you ever so much. I really appreciate that. 
He was the camera that was the first Dalek. You know the soccer that goes on to Jacqueline Hill? Jacqueline Hill, Yeah. That was brilliant, right? Hello, my name is Peter Neal. I was a sound assistant at Television Centre from 1964 to 1989. And during that time, I worked on many Doctor Whos. But one little incident which does come to mind was uh, working on an episode of The Space Pirates, in which Gordon Gostolo played a sort of travelling space junk man called Milo Clancy. And in one scene, he was making himself breakfast. There was some sort of shudder as the ship was hit by something. And he dropped the teapot and it smashed on the floor. Well, the scene was recorded without mishap. But I asked the prop boys afterwards um, what would have happened if I'd got my booming shot and we'd have had to do a retake. And they looked rather bemused and said, well, we'd have done it again. I said, you mean you've got another teapot? And I said, yes, of course we've got a spare teapot. And I said, well, I've just moved into a new flat and I need a teapot. I didn't get the booming shot, but can we pretend we did? And can I have the teapot, please? And that teapot did me for about 15 years after that. I love that story. So you got Doctor Who, an unused Doctor Who teapot. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Bless you. Thank you. I love that story. Um, right, this is this is very on the fly. This is guerrilla podcasting. Peter's just mentioned that he worked with Douglas Camfield, who is one of Doctor Who's most acclaimed directors. So uh, here's an insight into how, how Douglas worked. I always remember Dougie as being unflappable. And I worked on one drama with him, not Doctor Who. It was called After a Many a Summer. It was based on a book by Aldous Huxley. We had a special American guest star, Stubby K, which was unusual in those days. And it went into the studio at the time of a work to rule by studio cameraman. This was short of a full strike, and there weren't actually any rules for the cameraman to work by, so they made a few up. Things like, uh, we don't pan and zoom at the same time. We don't crane and track at the same time. Um, Various things like this. Uh, if, if, you, if you tracked in or zoomed in, you didn't alter the headroom um, because that would in, involve tilting at the same time as you were zooming. Anyway, Douglas was, as I said, unflappable and he just went away and re-scripted the whole 90-minute drama to work within their rules. And it looked very good. It had a bit of an air of a sort of 1930s film, which was roughly the period that it was set in anyway and um, it's a, just a testament to Dougie's unflappability really I love that, thank you Thanks to all the gents at the BBC Tech Ops reunion which is organised by Bernie, the first guy you heard and I have to say Peter's space pirate anecdote is my favourite one of the entire Who's Round so far. Now, I've got a couple of other disparate bits and bobs that aren't full-length interviews. They're anecdotes which I've opportunistically gathered when I've been in a pub with some people who have a Doctor Who connection. One of them is very tenuous, but he's a lovely and entertaining chap. And the other, well, let's just say, series regular? Yeah. This episode's the gift that keeps on giving. 
another opportunistic uh, interview that is slightly uncanonical, but what the hell? Because uh, I'm a maverick. I don't play by no rules. So I'm going to ask this gentleman who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, uh, my name's Johnny Candon, and Toby's talking to me about Doctor Who because it's what we've been doing in this pub for the last hour or so. But I was in... Well, I was in Death Comes to Time. And uh, I played, uh, according to Doctor Who magazine, uh, I played Soldier. I played a few people in it, but yeah, that's, that's, that was my... Um... So how did you, how, did you get the part because you were a fan? I did. Uh, what happened was, I was, do, I was at the Edinburgh Festival, and um, I was actually, I was, in a, I was in a bathroom, and I was standing next to a friend of ours, um, Ross Noble, the comedian, and he said... Um, Oh, I was just talking to Dan Freeman, and he's making a Doctor Who thing for Radio 4. And uh, he said, you should ask him, could you be in it? And Dan Freeman was in the bar we were in, so we went back upstairs. We were, well, yeah, I think myself and Dan had had a bit to drink, so I said, um, can I be in your Doctor Who thing? And he said, yes. So that was my audition. And um, it, then we sort of communicated. But I, I, we just sort of were back and forth a bit with each other. And then I actually was doing a gig in Devon, the night before the uh, the recording, which was in uh, Shepherd's Bush somewhere, and um, I got the overnight sleeper train back to arrive into Paddington Station at 7am so I could go and be in Doctor Who. So if I don't seem convincing as soldier, it's because I was very sleepy and um, I was just, I, had, I think I'd, all I'd eaten was the biscuits that they had in the green room. <laughs> so I was very tired, but probably off my head on sugar as well. So um, yeah, so. And what did soldier do then? Well, Soldier, I, I remember I had a few things to do. There's a bit where, um, it's at the beginning where, um, I can remember that General Tannis turns up and starts killing people, and um, Hugh Thomas, who we both, Hugh Thomas was um, the resident compere at a, a comedy place, uh, a gig called Downstairs of the King's Head, which is in Crouch End, and um, so I knew him very well through that, and he played the president of Santini, and um, I was one of his bodyguards, so we all had to run in and go, protect the president! And then we got shot by General Tannis's guards. And then there was another thing I did where I was... A fight, I think it was in an aeroplane, but it might have been a spaceship. It was a big um, um, battle in space. And I just sort of... There's lots of screaming and eyeing and people going, um, he's on your 12 o'clock and people get... So I did lots of that as well. And, of course, Hugh Thomas is the brother of Richard Martin. He is, who directed... Um, now, was he... Was, Richard Martin was Dalek Invasion of Earth, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah, and the da- some episodes of the Daleks. Some of the Daleks. Destruction, web, web Planet, Chase. There you go, yeah. He was... Um, and they look very similar, actually. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, I remember Hugh saying um, that his brother had directed the first Dalek story. So, um, yeah, it was, he, he's, um, it was, a, it was, there was definite connections there. So, you see, um, listeners, when you read and despised the tenth most popular column in Doctor Who magazine <laughs> that was written by myself and Johnny. You didn't realise that Johnny is actually more canonical than I am. Um, and so did, did, did you mingle with the stars? I did a bit, yeah. We all, there was, it, was, uh, it was the... Um, it was a little... Basically, there was a, little, there was a few sofas outside this little studio. It was a tiny little studio. And um, Labrook Grove, that's where it is. It and, is, um, yeah. And um, we... Uh, the day I did it, Stephen Fry was there... But only for a bit. But I was so starstruck, I just sort of, I just stared at him. You know, kind of, you know, that's Stephen Fry. And um, Sylvester McCoy was there, who was very nice. Um, and Jacqueline Pierce, who was, uh, she was lovely. She was proper, proper 
flirty old, not, not old, but flirty kind of um, just actor. You know what I mean? Just kind of like, hello, darling, all that kind of thing. And um, she was great. And then I, I spent a lot of the time just sort of chatting to John Coulshaw, who is brilliant at doing um, every doctor. At that time, yeah, we had eight doctors and he could do all of them. He was brilliant. He was really good. So I just sort of made him talk in doctor voices the whole time. And then every now and then, Dan would pop out and go, can you come in and scream a bit? And that's what we do. Yeah, but it was uh, mingling is uh, mingling would be uh, makes it sound far more glamorous than it was. It was drinking uh, cheap coffee and eating jammy dodgers, which are now canonical as well. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were really the tenth most least favourite thing in Doctor Who. Magazine. No, we were tenth. They they did a they did a uh, they have the the survey oh, yeah. and it, it made it into my last show. I did it as a joke, and um, uh, you know, what's your favourite? Um, article in Doc 2 magazine and Gallifrey Guardian was first and yeah. Factor Fiction or whatever was second mine would be anything by Andrew Pixley because I think he's quite amazing so. well and um, we I think it was us and and I actually thought what we were joint with was insulted by being in our presence because it should have been higher which is The Watcher um, <laughs> but I think us and The Watcher were joint 10th most popular I always say most popular even though I think we're about 15 got a vote Right. Um, and then what was other, below us? What was below us? Uh, the barcode I, on the front. Yeah, something That's... like that. Yeah. I, well, in the show, I say, um, "Screw you, Arata! Eat that contents page." <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that, that was fun though. I loved doing that. It was really yeah. good. It was uh, yeah, Doctor Who magazine. And, and to be fair, you know, they did just say. Uh, Yes, we, we might take it, but we've never been formally. No, we still like do the it. Series. We're still doing it. It's just going to come back in sixteen years. <laughs> it's never been officially stopped. It hasn't, has it? Basically, Tom Spilsby and Richard Atkinson, who are lovely, absolutely, and I'm so grateful to them for actually asking us to do it. You know what I mean? It was actually you they asked, and then you just wrote me in. But I, I, so I'm grateful to you too. But. Um, um, yeah, they they sort of said, right, um, we, we're we're, we're going to revamp the magazine and do different things a bit differently. Can you think of anything that we haven't really covered? And we just went, can we come back? To it? You know, it was one of those things where it was a very. I don't think we've been fired. I think we just um, we've been put on hiatus. Yeah, yeah. We might be back in eighteen months. It might be a nineteen eighty six job, but um, but I think it's I think it's more likely to be. Um, we will come back um, in sixteen years, more expensive. And uh, with better effects. I don't know. And loads of people who voted us joint tenth, when we come back and are really successful, would say how brilliant they thought we were all the time. Yeah, we used to really love them back then. And uh, now that Johnny's played by Johnny Depp and um, Toby is played by Olivia Colman. But uh, I'd watch that. But um, yeah, no, that was that was cool. That, I like doing. Um, yeah, so I've had two. I've had two Doctor Who, um, two brushes with Doctor Who. The Death comes to time, and um, a lovely two years doing um, doing Battle of Wits. Battle of Wits. Yeah. And what's it's the Doctor's fiftieth anniversary, Johnny? What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Um, oh God, I suppose um, don't be too mad. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes go onto the. I look at various websites. We know who which one I'm talking about, and um, it's 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 almost like there's no. Um, some people can't take any joy from something anymore, and I think Doctor Who. The reason everybody gravitates towards it is it's such a joyous, fun, brilliant, different thing that 
don't complain about what it is and just enjoy it for what it is and um, long may it continue Let, let's hope we're both sitting in this pub in 15 more years talking about it because it's um, it's fantastic and I think you know we should be we should be grateful it exists and still exists thank you Johnny Camden you're very welcome thank you Toby see that was good that was that was eight minutes you see there you yeah. go. Uh, see, this is the one where I'm I'm doing a faux pas at social occasions, so this is going to be very quick. But it's the first person who's actually a regular, proper star of Doctor Who that's agreed to speak to me. So I'm going to ask her who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Oh, I don't know who I am. I'm Nicola Bryant, apparently. Well, Nicola, we have three Colin, three of your stories that I don't have an anecdote from, so I'm going to let you choose. They're Attack of the Cybermen, The Two Doctors, and Time Lash. Which one are you going to regale me with? Um, you probably know all of these ones. Okay, I'll give you a choice of basement and a letter of recommendation. So maybe I'll say basement. Basement. Okay, do you know that we did a private Saturday morning rehearsal for Attack of the Cybermen at uh, Matthew's house? We actually went to his house in Chelsea and we didn't do this with any of the other directors but we went to his house and did a sort of extra rehearsal because we felt we were a bit short of time and we were that hard working that we did an unpaid Saturday morning at Matthews going through stuff well that's a credit to you and the team of and that was that was the base Matthew Robinson's basement yeah and did the whole cast do it no I think it was just us three Colin uh, Matthew and myself above and beyond the call of duty well and now because you're used to doing all your doctor anecdotes I'm going to ask you five questions because trivia is to the heart of a person so Nicola Bryant what is your greatest fear oh being myself Oh, good actors answer that. Uh, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, my favourite summer breakfast, which is seven prunes, spelt muesli and non-fat yoghurt uh, with cinnamon on top. So when you look at yourselves in the mirror, listeners, and wonder why you look like you do and why Nicola Brown looks like she does, that's the answer. Um, now, here's an interesting What were your parents' Christian names? Sheila and Dennis. See, I bet nobody's ever asked you that. Um, what is the... La- ah, OK, we've done a breakfast, but you're a condemned woman, you're on death row, you evil person. What is the last meal of the condemned Nicola Bryant? Oh, um, caviar, blinis and uh, Rodera Cristo. Cheap date <laughs> on, the, on the brink of oblivion. <laughs> and um, ah, now this is one I thought. Um, Blanche Dubois always depended on the kindness of strangers. What is the kindest thing a stranger has ever done for you? The pink lampshade. Uh, would you care to elaborate? Uh, Blanche Dubois liked the lampshade yes. covered with the pink. So anyone who gives me a nice soft focus, I think. <laughs> ah, okay. Oh, good. You've tied it in with the quote. I like it. Nice soft focus. Um, well, look, I've crashed a social occasion. This wasn't what this was for, but I've tried to be gorilla, and you've been very accepting of that. So, Nicola Bryant, I just ask you to nominate a charity of your choice. Oh, um, Great Ormond Street. Nicola, no, that's a great one. Nobody's ever, nobody's done that so far on it. Nicola, thank you. Oh, very welcome. Thank you. There we go. Thanks. (laughs) 
hang on, hang on. Ni- like Nicola Bryant's going to give me an, another obscure. She's had another half a glass of sparkly water. Um, Eric Deacon. I made a commercial with his twin brother. Brian. Brian. I did a, uh, an ad for Woolwich Building Society, which everyone said, oh, I love your Sunday Times commercial. <laughs> or I love your, oh, I love your rug commercial. Because nobody worked out what it was. It won lots of awards for lighting and looking sexy. And um, I, I went back to uh, Brian's for a cup of coffee. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where that was leading. But don't forget, he was with Rula Lenska, wasn't he? But, 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 but for, the reason we got on to Eric Deacon is because Eric Deacon was in Time Lash, yes. which you told us a lovely story about. Oh, because I, got, I was tied up yeah. and they went off to do another scene and they couldn't be bothered to untie me. And Pennant Roberts came back, lovely man, and said, I'm sorry, Nicola. And I said, I don't mind being tied up. And he was like, no, I'm sorry about the whole script. So I didn't say it so well the second time. But no. anyway, it's better. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's a bonus. Bernie's charity was Medicine Sans Frontières, which is www.msf.org.uk. www.msf.org.uk. And Nicholas's Great Ormond Street, which is www.gosh.org. www.gosh.org. And in the next episode of Who's Round, we add a few musical notes to proceedings as I chat to a composer uh, who was part of the legendary BBC Radiophonics workshop. That's in the next Who's Round, where the sound is always special. Power of the darkness, come to me, come to me, O earthen flesh, power of the spiral, come to me, come to weave me in your web. What the devil is it? It looks like a, a dinosaur egg made of crystal. I've never seen anything quite like it. Not on this planet, anyway. I used to be such a patient person, but I seem to have lost the ability to relax since I began travelling with the Doctor. Damned foolish of you to refuse the offer of a rifle, Doctor. In my experience, it's hard to make friends with someone if you're pointing a gun at them, Mr. Whitlock. Horde of them! Coming down like rain! Yes. I'm afraid our problem is getting a whole lot worse! And there, in my hand, was the moon flesh, which Wakan Tanka had given to me and allowed me to bring back from the stars. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.